Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the Met, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Now, enjoy the message. has been shut down. So many businesses, so many organizations, so many institutions have been shut down. It is great to know that there are some things when you look into God's word that are absolutely unstoppable. I mean, we're going to talk about one of the things that will never shut down, one of the things that will never go away, one of the things that absolutely cannot be stopped because God will not allow it. And you know what it is? It's his church. It is the power of God in his church. It is absolutely unstoppable. There's something special. There's something incredible. There's something supernatural. There's something anointed about God's church. That's why everyone needs to be a part of his church. If you are a Christ follower, if you know him as your savior, you need to be locked in to the life of the church. In Hebrews, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves as the manner of some is, but so much the more assemble as you see hard days and difficult times and evil days approaching. And what's beautiful about technology is we're able to stay connected with one another. We have thousands of people that are connected into the life of this church through the means of technology. And many of you who are in the room and many who have been in the other services, you're connecting into the life of the church because you believe in the value of what I'm talking about this morning. And that is the power of God in his church. Isaiah said that there uh, are no weapons that can be formed against you that will prosper. Now that didn't say there wouldn't be weapons formed. And when a weapon is formed against you, it didn't say it wouldn't be frightening. It just said it won't prosper. And all the forces of hell cannot uh, prevail against God's church. I believe that a Bible-drilled, Jesus-thrilled, spirit-filled church is unstoppable. And that's what I want to talk about for a little while this morning. Now, in Matthew 16, you have really the organization of the first church. Jesus had just asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, well, some say you're a prophet, and some say you're a great leader, and some, you know, some of all these other things. And he says, to, but who do you say that I am? And ladies and gentlemen, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the world as a, a, a group thinks about Jesus, what matters in eternity, is who do you say he is? What does he matter to you? The most significant thing when life's long day is done it's not going to be what denominational flag flew over your church. It's not going to be how you interpreted or applied certain principles of God's word. The most significant thing that will matter in eternity is this. What did you do with Jesus? You've either received him or you've rejected him. If you get Jesus wrong, it doesn't matter what else you get right. And if you get Jesus right, you can get a lot of other stuff wrong. I think we're going to all get to heaven one day and realize we were right about some stuff and we were wrong about some other stuff. I've told you before, I don't even believe everything I've ever said. So I'm just suggesting this morning that the big thing and the thing we ought, to, we ought to make a big deal about every weekend as we come to this place is we ought to make a big deal about Jesus. He said, if you lift me up, whether you're on campus or you're online, he said, if you lift me up, Jesus said, I will draw all men to me. And so he asked those disciples, who do you say I am? And, G and Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you did well. 
because that didn't come out of your own spirit. That didn't come out of a human heart. He said, my heavenly father supernaturally revealed that truth to you. And can I tell you, when a person comes to faith in God, it's not uh, the preponderance of my argument to them as to whether or not they should receive him or not. That's not what it is. It's not your ability to persuade them as to whether or not they should receive Jesus or not. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, listen, it is because the Holy Spirit of God convinced them in their heart that he is who he says he is. And it is an absolute supernatural work of God when God brings someone to himself. Paul said, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Only God can convert a soul. All God will do, ladies and gentlemen, is let us drop seeds and carry water. It's God who gives increase. And when he was talking to his apostles that day and Simon Peter connected the dots and got it right, Jesus gave that famous verse that I want to call your attention in Matthew 16, 18, and it has to do with the founding of the church. Listen to what he said. I say unto you, he's speaking to those apostles, he's speaking directly to Simon Peter, you are Peter. In the Greek, you are Petros. Peter means a stone. It means a rock. You are Petros. And upon this rock, Petra, he uses a different word. You are a stone, you're a pebble, you're a rock, but on this boulder, on this Petra, he said, I will build my church, and here's the unstoppable value, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. He said, if the church decides to charge hell, hell could not withstand the power of God in and through his church. So it's an incredible thing, it's an awesome thing, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of an unstoppable force on the earth, and that is the church of God. Let me tell you, if this country has ever turned around and this world has ever reached, it will not happen through the courthouse. It will not happen through uh, the government house. It will happen through the church house. This is the institution God has designed to make a difference in his world. So church is significant and church is important. And when you speak of church, the Bible talks about it as being the mystical spiritual body of Christ here on the earth. Now, there are two ideas of church in the Bible. There is the church that is universal. And let me explain that. There is a connection you and I have universally with every solitary soul on this earth who knows Jesus as their Savior. We're a part of them. They are a part of us. Whether they are in Europe or Asia or Africa, wherever they are, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are connected in a universal church. And then there is a church that is local. In fact, in this particular passage, this is the very first time the word church is used in the Bible. I will build my church. The Greek word is ekklesia. It means called out, called out gathering or a called out assembly. Called out of what? Called out of a system of secularism, I would say in our vernacular. Called into a, a, a different government, a different idea. Following Jesus as the head and the leader, he is our founder. He is the foundation of our, of our church. And so when Jesus establishes the church here in Matthew 16, he is establishing something according to his own word that is simply unstoppable. I heard about this guy that had been deserted on a desert, deserted island for a period of time, and he was finally rescued. And after a period of, uh, of time, they were interviewing him about his experience there on the island, and they noticed that he had constructed three huts. And so they were curious about that. He was on the island alone, and he, yet he had three huts. And he said, what is the significance of those structures? He said, well, the first hut is my home. 
That's where I lived and I worked and I cooked and I kind of existed in that hut. The second hut I dedicated to the Lord. It was my church. That's where I tended. I worshiped there. He said, what about the third hut? I don't understand that. He said, that's my old church. That's where I used to go. And I think probably every Christ follower, if you've been, in, if you've been connected to the creator very long, you kind of have that experience, right? My new church, my old church. But the point is, we want you to connect it into a church. You need to be a part of a church somewhere. Now, the Bible uses at least four metaphors to help us understand the significance and understand the value of church. It talks about church in the sense that it is a, a fellowship, that a church is a fellowship. And as a fellowship, Acts 2, verse 42, we're connected with each other uh, in, in partnerships. We do life together. We do ministry together. Uh, we, we have more... Um, uh, 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 power when we are together. We can make a bigger difference when we're together. So there's a sense that a church is a fellowship. And then the Bible in Matthew 26, verse 31, speaks of the church as a flock, as a flock. We're like sheep that have gathered. We are a, a flock. And I, I've often wondered why I use sheep as a, you know, as a, a, a metaphor to help us understand. You know, Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. It's not a compliment when you think about it that he calls a sheep. Sheep are the dumbest animals, by the way, that ever lived. There's no trained sheep. You cannot train a sheep. Uh, it's just so, but God says, hey, when I look at my kids, I love them, but they're like sheep. So we are a fellowship and we are a flock. And then the Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 8, we're family. We're family. There's a familial connection you and I have to one another. We're brothers and sisters, and we share uh, the same father. And so we are, a, we are a family, and we're connected with one another in that sense. So you have fellowship, you have flock, you have family. But this morning, I want to use the fourth metaphor for our thinking, and I hope you'll uh, uh, understand that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 that a church is a body, a body. You've heard this expression the body of Christ. And that is a apt description of what a church is and what a church should do. A body indicates a container and content. There's something significant by using the word body to help us understand how a church is and how a church should operate. Now, I think about the original body. If I think about the metaphor body, I think about the original body that God created back in the book of Genesis. The Bible says God stooped and formed man from the dust of the ground. And by the way, an interesting thought to consider is everything else God created, he, would, he, he spoke it into existence. He, he spoke it into existence. Let it be, and it was. Let it be, and it was. But the first thing God touched with his hand was man. And since that point in time, we all had a desire to be touched, to be touched by God. There's nothing as powerful as a human touch I mean, scientists, sociologists have, have studied small children who were not nurtured and small children who were not touched and who were not caressed, and they have discovered that they struggled with developmental issues as a result of a lack of nurturing. There's something powerful about a human touch, a pat on the back, the shaking of a hand, uh, an embrace. There's something powerful about it, and I just simply say that the very thing, first thing the Bible records that God ever did in his created uh, 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 genius and brilliance is he touched his creation. He touched man. And so I'm suggesting to you that one of the things that he did when he brought man out of the dust of the ground is he gave man form. 
The Bible says that he made man in his likeness. We are the imago Dei. We are made and designed in the image of God. Now, I know because of sin, we're in the wrecked image of God. We're not in the original design. We have sin and flaws and problems and issues because we're, we're not in the original design. We're in a wrecked design of the original. <laughs> uh, if I took you out to the junkyard and said, hey, you ever seen a Rolls Royce? There's one there. Well, you hadn't seen a Rolls Royce. But we take you to the showroom, probably in Beverly Hills or somewhere, and show you that. That's a Rolls Royce. You're seeing it in its original form. Well, in the original form, before we wrecked, we were wrecked by sin, we were in a perfected image of God. But he formed us and he shaped us, the Imago Dei. He gave man structure. He gave man form. So the first thing you see about the body is the body God formed it. And the second thing he did is that he breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life, and man became an eternal soul. He gave eternality to the soul, meaning that there'll never be a moment in eternity when you and I will cease to exist. Now, our bodies will go back to the earth one day, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, but the spirit, Solomon said, returns to God who gave it. Our spirits are eternal. Our spirits will live on forever. Our bodies sleep in death and wait the morning of the resurrection when at that time they'll be glorified and reunited with the spirit and soul that are at home with God. But our bodies that you and I occupy today are just temporary. But what gives our bodies life is the breath of God. He breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life and man became a living soul. Think about it this way. God formed man and then he filled man. He filled that which he had formed, and in the filling of the form, there came life. And then the third thing he did in the garden was after he had formed man, the Imago Dei, breathed into man the breath of life, man was alive, then he gave man function. He gave him a purpose. He said, this is what you're to do. Take care of this garden, right? Tend the garden. Take care of this place. Be a good steward of this planet. I've put you in charge of this. You'll have dominion, and so your job is to be a good steward over all that which I have created. So I'm saying in principle, when God created that original body, he formed it, he filled it, and he gave to it function. Now let's jump forward and look at the principle of the body of Christ. And I want to say what works in that original design in Genesis 2 works in Matthew 16, because in Matthew 16, what you see when Jesus said, you are Petros, but upon this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What he was doing in that moment was forming his church. He was telling this apostles, understand I'm about to go away. I'm going to go to the cross, and then I'll go to the tomb, and then I'll ascend to heaven, and I'm going to leave my presence, my body, my spirit here on this earth, and you are going to be commissioned to lead the church that I leave on the earth. And so when Jesus ascended to the Father, man, you have now the expansion of this church that he had formed. When the Apostle Paul was talking about structure, the form of a church, you get a sense of what it looks like in Ephesians 4. It's a great narrative. He says here in Ephesians 4, he says that he gives to the church uh, pastors and apostles and evangelists and, and teachers. And here's the reason the church is structured that way. He says, here it is, for the perfecting, for the perfecting of the saints, or the, a, a better word might be equipping, when you think of perfecting, you think about sinlessly perfected. 
and that's not a possibility. I don't say we don't strive to be better, but let me tell you something. None of us will ever be perfect. If, if your goal is sinless perfection while on the earth, just pray God kills you because that's the only way you'll achieve it. <laughs> when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, Third John. But until that happens, it's going to be two steps forward and three steps back. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying the best you and I will ever be, you ready? Sinners saved by grace. Full stop. <laughs> so that's the best. So we, we, we try to live better, we try to do right, we try to live the best way that we can, but the point is we're never going to achieve perfection, and that's not what's indicated here in Ephesians 4.11. What is meant by the word is maturity. So he's saying here the purpose of pastors, evangelists, teachers, the purpose of these gifted people who are called to serve in the structure of a church is to equip people, to equip them for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. So the reason the church has structure is to minister to the people God has called us uh, to be a part of the church. So the purpose of a pastor is to help you discover how and where you fit. And then to try to equip you, train you to function in that role so that the church is built up as a result. It's the structure of a church. It's significant that we understand it. In fact, there's three Greek words that describe the work of a pastor. There's the word, uh, Greek word poimain. We get the word shepherd from that word. Part of the responsibility of a pastor is to lead the sheep, feed the sheep, guide the sheep, guard the sheep. <laughs> That's the shepherd, poimain. Another word the Bible uses to describe the work of the pastor is presbyteros. We get presbytery or presbyterian from the word. It has the idea of, of, of having a maturity, of being an elder. Uh, of, it doesn't have much to do with your age. It has more to do with just your spiritual maturity. There's some very young people who are very spiritually mature. So the role of a pastor is poimain, shepherd, uh, uh, presbyteros, elder, and then episcopos. Uh, epi is over, scopos to see, see through. You have a scope on a rifle. It's you, something you look through. Epi, over, see through, oversee. So it's a bishop. It's an overseer. That's the role of a pastor. It doesn't mean the pastor does everything. It means the pastor is to see that everything is done. Does that make sense? And so the pastor equips the saints. The pastors equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Ministry is significant. Listen, ministry is not a, a special office. It is a special purpose. Uh, it's, it's the idea of uh, uh, the Greek word in Acts 7 of deacon. When they selected deacons, it's diakonos. It means one who ministers or one who serves. Now, we have a different deacon structure in our church. We look at everybody who volunteers as diakonos, <laughs> your deaconesses and deacons, anybody that serves in the life of our church. You say, how long do I get to be that? As long as you serve. How do I not be a deacon anymore? Quit serving. <laughs> it's, it's really easy. So uh, everyone who serves, that, that's the role they play. If you want to look at it in biblical terms, what am I talking about? I'm talking about structure. I'm talking about a biblical structure for how a church should function. And so you have the structure of the church. He talks about that. Then down in Ephesians 4, verse 16, this is why it's important that you're connected into the life of the church. He talks about the church as a body. Listen, he says, from the whole body, listen, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Now, let me stop and explain that. The body is joined and knit together by what these particular joints supplies. 
the foot bone is connected to the ankle bone. The ankle bone is connected to the leg bone, right? Remember that? Leg bone. No, you don't remember that song? Okay, well, I just introduced you to this. It's a real song. I just didn't do it any justice. I don't sing well. I just make a joyful noise unto the Lord, right? The point is my foot is connected to my leg through a joint. That's what he's talking about. He said, you have all these parts of a body, and the parts are connected through the joint. And what happens at the joint, the connection point, is the body receives and is able to give. So the significance of being connected into the life of a church is so that I can receive ministry and give ministry. Notice it now. Every joint supplies. There is a healthy flow through these joints. The wrist connects the hand to the arm. The joint is the wrist. So if my hand is connected to my arm, my hand is healthy, it can serve, it can, it can, it can lift, it can uh, uh, be extended, but my hand can't operate the way it's designed if it doesn't have a connection to my body. So there has to be a connection point. That's why we say in the life of our church, we want you to serve somewhere. We want you to get into a study somewhere. We want you to be connected to a group somewhere because the connection is where you receive ministry and you give ministry. You know, at Halloween, the reason that you get kind of freaked out when you're taking the kids trick-or-treating and somebody really goes all in on this deal, and here's a hand laying in the yard, and over here's a head sitting on the table. Well, it's not that you've never seen a hand before. What's frightening about it? It's not that it's a hand. It's like I can wave at you. Nobody's freaked out about that. I'm looking at your heads. You're looking at mine. Nobody's freaked out. I hope you're not freaked out about that. Do you know why you're not? Because it's connected. Now, you just find a hand laying out there on the parking lot when you're leaving, you're going to be freaked out. That's what's freaky about Halloween is you have parts that are not connected. That's why when people say, I can be just as good of a Christian not connected into the life of the church as otherwise, it doesn't really hold water because you're not going to be able to receive or to be able to give ministry if you're not connected into his body. You have to be connected somewhere so that you can give as well as receive ministry. And when Paul was talking about structure in Ephesians 4, he's really underscoring the value of this. So, so get this, when the body is formed, what you have in the formation of the body is organization. Organization. And it's so important that the body has organization. You're, 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 our bodies are structured. We have bones, we have structure. Our bodies are structured, organization. But just because you have organization doesn't mean it's going to be life-giving. So the second thing that has to happen to the body is not only is the body formed, but you ready for this? The body has to be filled. That's when the organization, now follow me, becomes an organism. That's when the structure takes on life. I mean, every corporation in America has, is an organization, but that doesn't mean they have life-giving qualities that make you feel apart and connected you wouldn't describe a lot of corporations as necessarily a family or a flock or a, or a body or a fellowship. It's a place you work and you get paid and it's good. You can support your family and live a good life. Thank God for them. But it's different than the church. If a church is only an organization and it doesn't become an organism, then people are not going to feel connected, emotionally connected. Because the organism is where the life comes from. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, he filled what Jesus had previously formed. You tracking? 
He formed it in Matthew 16, but he said, wait, Acts 1, wait until the Holy Spirit comes, wait until you're endued with power, wait until you have the Holy Spirit present, or you will be an organization, not an organism. You will be a structure that doesn't give life. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt those believers And all of a sudden, man, the body of Christ that had been formed was now filled. And it became a life-giving structure. It it started bringing people together. It was bringing religious people, these Jewish people that had followed the laws and the rigors of the rituals and the regulations, and had looked down their nose at the Gentiles who didn't have any of that. And all of a sudden, these walls were falling, and this was getting broken down, and God was creating unity within his church. He was bringing people from different backgrounds and different cultures and different ideologies, and he was bringing, what were they united around? Let me say, who were they united around? Jesus. He was the unifier. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians, we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. We keep it. I can't create unity. Neither can you. There's not a church anywhere that can create unity. You can't say, okay, guys over here in this section, those of you watching now, you need to be friends with these people over here. Let's try to make this work. No, that's something only the Holy Spirit can bring people together. Only the Holy Spirit can create unity. But when you're a part through the joints and the connection, and when you're a part of a body and you give it an opportunity... Suddenly, you'll find a connection that brings about a unity, and then what we are responsible for is to keep that unity. Don't let anything disturb it or disrupt it. Anything God is bringing together, the devil will be at work tearing it apart. God will bring people together, and the enemy tries to divide the people God has brought together. That's why the first thing we have to endeavor to do in the life of a healthy body is to protect unity. Protect unity. It's so important. And the unifying factor in the life of the church, that which brings us life and energy, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I believe the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, once you received him, you receive that Holy Spirit. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe that there's many fillings of the Holy Spirit. Now, my view has always been that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens the moment you receive Jesus as your Savior, and from that time forward, there are many, 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 many fillings of the Holy Spirit. I believe you can have a baptism of the Holy Spirit, you can know him as your Savior, and not be filled with the Holy Spirit. Read what Paul said in Ephesians 5.18. He said, hey, don't get drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled, and literally in the Greek, the idea, be you being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he draws an analogy to drinking and getting drunk to the filling of the Holy Spirit. I guess he knew his audience, right? <laughs> so let me ask you, how, how does one get drunk? Uh, you don't have to answer that. But I would assume, <laughs> based on some I've talked to, you do that by drinking and drinking a lot, you get drunk. That rocket science? Well, he's saying, how are you filled with the Spirit? By yielding and yielding a lot. That means every day, every moment of the day, we yield to the Holy Spirit. And listen, as we yield, he fills that which we yield. Listen, God cannot fill what's already full. And so every day we yield ourselves and we say, Lord, help me to live with purpose today. Help me to make a difference today. Help me to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit today. And God will fill that which we yield. 
You see, in Romans 8, verse 9, the Bible says, if anyone have not his spirit, he's none of his. So you can, on one hand, receive Jesus and not have his spirit. I've told you, that's like getting God on the installment plan. I'll get Jesus now and the Holy Spirit later. It didn't work that way. Listen, you get all of him. Here's the problem. He doesn't get all of you. And once he gets all of you, you talk about feeling something. Once he gets all of you, you talk about experiencing something. All that happens just like that. But I'm suggesting to your heart that the filling of the Holy Spirit, the filling is what gives the form life. It's what makes a difference in the life of our church. It's what will make the difference in the life of the other people. And let me give you the third thought. Once he's formed it and once he's filled it, again, he does so so that it will function. And I would say function with unction. God has designed the church to function. There's a point. It's not just about us. What did he say in the Great Commission as he ascended to his father? He said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, teaching them to observe to do whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. If, if it was just about my enjoyment and not my employment, if that's all it was, then God would be more merciful just to call me to heaven the minute I received him as Savior. But that's not how it works, and that would put a big dent in our evangelistic outreach, by the way. Come to Jesus, go to heaven right then. That's not how it works. You know how he leaves you here? You know how he leaves our church here? For purpose. For purpose. We're to be a bright, shining light in a dark and hopeless world. We're to be his hands and his feet and his voice and his heart here on this earth. We're to make a difference. And as long as we're fulfilling purpose, God will give us time. When Cindy went to heaven, one of the things I had to wrap my head around was the idea that her purpose on this earth had ended. I've told you before, it wasn't my purpose, and it wasn't my kid's purpose, and it certainly wasn't our grandkids' purpose. But God in his design plan for her life, it's time for her to come home and call her home. And I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I, I know I'm in the fourth quarter. <laughs> and when you're in the fourth quarter, you watch the clock. I remember I played football, and we were in the fourth quarter. You, you keep your eye on the time, more so than in the first. So I got an eye on the clock. But I know like Cindy, I'm going to be here until God says, okay, son, that's all I sent you down there to do. One of these days, I'll hear a voice like she heard. And one day, I'll step from the temporal into the eternal. I'll be absent from my body and be present with my Lord. And I hope to hear him say, as I know she heard him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So we're going to be here till purpose is done. What is the primary purpose of a church? It's to do what he did. What did he do? John, I mean, Luke 19.10 said, he came to seek and save those who are lost. It's all about lost people, guys. It's all about people who don't know Jesus. Some churches ought to have a no shoes, no shirt, no sinners sign on the door. <laughs> we forget what we're here to do. We're here to be a, a mission at the doorstep of hell. We're here to rescue the perishing and care for the dying. We're not a cruise ship. We're a hospital ship. It's not about spritzing everybody and making sure everybody has a fun drink. It's making sure 
that the people that are wounded and damaged and hurting and dying are ministered to and told about Jesus. That's our purpose. That's why we have a food pantry, and that's why we reach out, and that's why we do online, and that's why we do this in everything we do, is so somebody might know Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing will be, what did you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray for my friends who've watched and those who've been in this room, that each one will know you as Savior. Father, I pray if there's someone watching today who've never humbled their heart and never said, Lord, with all that I know about me, I trust now all that I know about you. Come into my heart and forgive my sin. I pray this will be the moment. Help us as a church, as the body of Christ, to do what you did. And as we do that, help us to hold on to the promise that regardless of viruses and opposition and regardless of the world's opinion, a church like that is simply unstoppable. And Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.